0: any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed, so you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: So if we have too much motivation, we're manic. Um, You know, that's too much left brain. If we have too little motivation, that's depression. That's a left brain deficit, right? So this is the left brain and the right brain. The left brain activates the immune system. So it increases our immune sensitivity and our um, uh, antibody sensitivity. And it, it, so it's more prone if the left brain is too active. We have a hyperactive immune system. We get autoimmune problems. These are kids that I see that, you know, as soon as dairy is introduced to their diet or even if their mother's eating dairy, they get eczema as a child.
0: Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, welcome back to the Better Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today I sat down to speak with Dr. Robert Melillo. He is a New York-based clinician, he's a professor, he's a brain researcher, and best-selling author. And his specialty lies in ADHD, autism, and other neurobehavioral disorders, so things like oppositional divine disorder, OCD, etc. We sat down to talk today because this has been a clinician who I have known about literally for decades. Uh, I've seen him speak. I have studied his work. I have taken a lot of his protocols into my own practice when I've had difficult cases, specifically pediatric cases where they had, you know, maybe sensory processing disorders or they had been given a label of ADHD and the mom or the father, you know, the parents were looking for uh, some natural solutions for care. And Dr. Malilo's work is really around these two main principles or two main silos. One is these hemispheric imbalances in the brain. So we talked today about how those things can develop. So environmental uh, stress, there can be metabolic stress, physical stress, whether that's you know, in utero or when the baby's born and how that can lead to changes in the accelerated development of the left and the right hemisphere of the brain. And we talked about how that may show up. So if that already seems like I have no idea what she's talking about, we do talk about specific examples where we say someone who has a left brain dominant or a right weak hemisphere, this is what that person might look like. This is where we might see them excel. We might see them excel in math and science, but they may not necessarily be very good in social communication or EQ, et cetera. And then we spoke about primitive reflexes or retained reflexes. Now this is really where Robert has had such a huge impact on my development as a clinician and how I modeled his framework in my practice. So we talked about some of the main uh, retain potential retained reflexes, we define what that is. So all babies, you and I, we all have these reflexes, but over time, what we hope is that the frontal lobe will inhibit them. Um, and so we don't see them anymore. And what happens is when the frontal lobe is weak, whether it's the left or the right side, we may see these reflexes retained over time. And we talked about the implications for them. I discussed some clinical examples of patients that I've seen in practice uh, as children, even extending into adulthood where we see primitive retained reflexes, what to do about it. And we finished our discussion talking about some modalities for therapy. So we talked about this idea of physical rehabilitation, which is a big part of my, has always been a big part of my philosophy around healing is always movement therapy. So we discussed some of those, and we also talked about metabolic and nutritional therapy and some considerations for care, whether you are a parent who, if you have a child that has been given the label ADHD or OCD uh, or autism This is really Dr. Malilo's specialty. And this is really a podcast for whether you're a parent, you're an educator, you're a clinician. I know there's a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast. So you are going to get a lot out of this. And then we also link at the end... uh, to Dr. Malilo's teachings. And if you want to find out more about him, where you can find him and be taught by him. So this was such a great episode for me. It was such an honor. He is the first uh, chiropractor that I've had on the podcast and someone that I've looked up to for many, many years. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Robert Malilo. I am a huge fan of the bio optimizers magnesium breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such Your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's dot com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. All right, Dr. Robert Melillo, I am so thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: Your, uh, your work has been such an influence on not only as a mother to my children in terms of how I care for them and watch their development and their, you know, the developmental milestones, but as a, as a clinician, you know, treating my pediatric, my pediatric patients. And I would, um, when I would, ha- when I would have a child come in, it was usually the mother was at the end of her rope and somehow, you know, tried all the different things. And finally someone said, you know, go see Dr. Stephanie, see if she can help you. And, uh, you know, the child usually had some sort of sensory processing issues or whatnot and felt like, you know, the allopathic or traditional model had really failed them. So, before we before we get into your seminal work of course we're going to be talking about hemispheric imbalances we're going to be talking about retained primitive reflexes and some of the rehabilitation frameworks that you have in brain balance centers and in, in you know in your research and your work let's just Introduce you to the listener. I mean, you are sort of a you know rock star. You're really well known in the chiropractic community and in other you know body work communities, medical communities. But for someone who hasn't necessarily you know heard of you, you know how you got into this work. I'd love to know what your origin story is if you can share that with us.
1: Sure, origin story. I like that. It's kind of like a superhero type of thing. You
0: got it. You got it. (laughs)
1: Um, So you know, yes, I you know initially started my career as a chiropractor. I got into chiropractic because I was an athlete my whole life. I had a football scholarship in college and I was uh, struggled with a lot of injuries, of course, that other people had knee surgery at a young age. And I wanted to go and be a sports medicine doctor. I wanted to work with athletes. Um, But my chiropractor, one weekend I was home during football season, I injured myself. And I was told by the team orthopedist that I couldn't play that week. And uh, I saw the chiropractor, and within a day, uh, he had literally fixed the problem. And I actually went and had the best game of my career that weekend. But he said to me, why are you going to medical school if you want to work with athletes? Who do you come to when you have an injury? And it was always him. So I went to chiropractic school, and when I was there, in my first semester, I fell in love with neurology. Um, We had really intensive neurology courses. And, you know, at that point, I I wasn't even that aware that the basis of all chiropractic is neurology, really the brain, Um, with chiropractic really being discovered when a, a spinal adjustment helps somebody hear, which means that from the very beginning, it changed somebody's brain and someone's perception of reality and their ability to to be aware of what's around them, So, um, you know, I fell in love with neurology. And so the idea of being able to mix some sort of like sports rehab with neurology was my focus. When I graduated, I uh, immediately enrolled in a subspecialty program for three years in neurology. Um, I was one of the first chiropractors in the world. I was actually in the first group to ever get a a diplomate or subspecialty in neurology. And then I did it. And then I also got one in rehab. So I, you know, very quickly, um, you know, did a lot of extra academics and started incorporating that into that. And then pretty soon I was asked to start teaching. um, And I started getting into research. And in the 90s, when, you know, when this was all in the beginning happening, um, this was the decade of the brain and all of this really neat stuff was coming out. And we were trying to really understand at the highest level. What was actually happening? What were we doing as chiropractors? What were we doing through rehab? Um, And um, so, you know, all of that was coming together and the idea of what was happening in the brain because of new functional imaging became available in the 90s that was never available before, and more sophisticated ways with computers of looking at the brain in real time. And what was happening in the hemispheres, and it was becoming much more understood that problems in the brain were very rarely actually chemical or physical they were really electrical and they really had to do with functional problems in the brain so that the brains on a static picture look perfectly normal but when you actually assess the brain's function they weren't normal and and what was happening was around something called functional connectivity the way that networks form and develop and interact and connect with one another and especially networks from one side of the brain to the other that there was a obvious problem in many things where the two hemispheres weren't really connecting and talking to one another and there was this imbalance so that's where a lot of my work was centering um and my rehab and everything was 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 going there and and all was good. I was in practice for about 10 years. And then I walk home one day and I walk in late at night, like most of us do at nine o'clock. And my wife is sitting at kitchen table with a um, another woman and she's crying. She introduces to me to her and tells me that she met her at a fundraiser the night before. Uh, that was for an organization that she started for ADHD and autism and that her son had severe ADHD and learning disabilities and She didn't know what to do. She had tried everything. She had went all the traditional routes, and everything failed, and it was getting worse. And they had, uh, you know, a violent episode in the home. And so she was kind of at her wit's end. And my wife said, you know, can you help her? And so, you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm pretty busy now as it is. You know that I'm not around. We have three small children of our own. And I don't know. And she said to me, you know, I, I know that, but this woman's in pain. She's suffering And, um, I I feel like this is something you're meant to do. Okay. So I started looking into it, but two days later we go to a parent teacher meeting for my older son who's in first grade. And the teacher walk. we walk in and teacher says right away, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think your son may have ADHD or something like that because Mm -hmm. he's really talented, but he's all over the place. He can't sit down. And, um, and I, so as a parent, I felt, as a professional, first of all, I felt terrible. I felt like, you know, I don't know what ADHD really is at this point. And, um, you know, how can I be an expert when I don't even recognize this in my own son? I don't know anything about this. And so I felt, you know, embarrassed. And then as a parent, like most parents, I felt like it was my fault in some way because I wasn't around as much and I was teaching and lecturing and working hard. But then I heard my wife's voice saying again that you're supposed to do something here. So I took it as a message Um, and I said, You know what? I don't know what this is, but I'm going to figure out what it is and I'm going to see if there's anything that can be done. So that started me on my search. And I went out to doctors and therapists and people that I worked with. And I knew a lot about many different things. And I had many different doctors and therapists in my office. And none of them knew what ADHD was. They didn't know what was actually happening in the brain, um, which to me didn't make any sense. I couldn't figure out what to do if I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't know how people were treating these issues when they didn't know what the problem was. So I started doing research on my own. I started connecting with other researchers around the world. I started compiling research and um, eventually figured it out, I think, as well as anybody has. And most importantly, started looking at what to do about it. And that's kind of been my work, you know. And, uh, you know, I remember there was one, the first autistic child I worked with, young boy named Dan Costello he was three and a half years old and his family had come in crying because they had just seen a uh, psychiatrist who told them that they should start looking for an institution for their three and a half year old son because that's where he was going to end up so of course they were devastated and um, so they came in and they asked if I could help him and I said I don't know I think I know what autism is but I'm I don't. I don't know. So they said, "Well, will you try?" And I said, "Sure." So I started doing just some basic things with hemispheric-based stimulation to the right side of the brain. And in three and a half weeks, they came back um, crying again, and they were all hugging me, and I didn't know why. And then they told me that Daniel started speaking that morning and was speaking, you know, like all day. And they attributed it to me, and I didn't know if I had anything to do with it. I didn't know if it was just coincidence, luck, a miracle, but I did know something that. As they were hugging me, I remember saying to myself, if I did this, this is what I will do the rest of my life because there is nothing more important than this. What could be more important than allowing a child who may never have spoken to speak? And so I dedicated my life to that and, um, and you know, this is where it is. I. You know, started a company called Brain Balance Achievement Centers. We have over 140 centers across the country using the work that I've developed on children with all different types of issues and teenagers and adolescents and young adults. And we've worked with over somewhere around 40,000 kids over the past 10 years. And we have, you know, a huge success rate. And I continue to do research. My own practice is in New York City. I have five best-selling books I have a a textbook, I head up a research lab, Um, I've written a number of scientific papers and texts, one text in particular called Neurobehavioral Disorders of Childhood, An Evolutionary Perspective, which was really the compilation of all of those 10 years of research that I did, has over 4,000 references in it, and basically, you know, defines what I believe is actually happening in the brain.
0: That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. Let's, let's dive into some of your work. So let's, you know, for someone who's never heard of what a hemispheric imbalance is, let's define that for the listener. And then maybe we can dissect a little deeper and say, what does it look like when someone's right brain strong, left brain weak, and then on the contrary, left brain strong, right brain weak?
1: Sure. I mean, in an ideal world, our, both of our brains, uh, develop exactly together at this, at the same level, basically. And, you know, in humans, ideally our brain should always work together. Um, we have two sides of our brain that are very different from one another. Doesn't start out that way. It's built that way during development. Um, and, they do very different things and specialize in different things. They should always work together. Basically, one side of the brain does one half of a job and the other side does the other. So for instance, while talking and communicating, the left hemisphere is predominantly controlling the verbal words we use and uh, anything that has to do with that and the muscles of our mouth and you know, using syntax and all of that. The right brain is, is doing the nonverbal component, meaning facial expression, gestures, um, relating emotions, understanding the social implications of what we're talking about, uh, reading other people as we're talking to them, and knowing you know, if it's good or bad, or, or you know, we're hurting them or not hurting them. So both of that needs to happen simultaneously together. And that's an example of how the brain should work. Uh, But what can happen, and what does happen uh, very often, is that when the brain is developing, um, the brain doesn't develop in, in parallel, it develops in series, meaning that the reason why the right brain becomes the right brain and the left brain becomes the left brain is because the right brain develops first in the womb and for the first two to three years of life, then the left brain forms, and during those times... There, you know there's only subtle differences 20 thirty percent difference but it's enough that all the information coming in one side of the brain becomes better faster at processing that type of information and responding in, in sp- particular ways so the experience that we're having during those three years shapes the basis of what the right brain will be better at. And then the left brain kicks in. And then the left brain is better, a little bit better during those, that phase. And that little difference that grows over time, this side of the brain gets better and better and better, better at what it does. And the other side of the brain gets, you know, worse and worse and worse at doing that. And it gets better and better and better and better and better at what it does And so the brain becomes very asymmetric and we have all these different areas. So it's really like having two brains in one. So obviously it's an advantage. The potential problem though is that as the brain becomes so um, separated from a standpoint of specialty, it is more important that the brain can integrate with one another, that it can coordinate and synchronize so that we can bring all of these individual areas to work together. And that's what a thought looks like. That's what a memory looks like. That's what an idea looks like. It's really a series of different activities and different networks and different parts of the brain all doing different things and specializing it and then blending it all together to get a whole picture of our world around us and what's happening from instant to instant to instant. This is constantly happening uh, instantaneously in our brain. Now what happens quite often is that in the womb or early in development in those first six years, one side of the brain may be delayed. The genes associated with expressing itself and creating these connections become delayed for various environmental reasons. And when one side of the brain is is, is slowed, if the right brain period, if it slows in its development, the left brain may kick in too early and so what ends up happening is we end up getting one side of the brain that really accelerates in its development, and the other side really is delayed, and we get what we call a developmental asynchrony, and the brain builds from the bottom up, and then the brain grows, and then it's supposed to come from the top down and regulate everything like a puppet master. It regulates everything, our, our heart rate, our blood pressure, our digestive system, everything, our immune system. And if there's any problem on the way up where the brain gets stuck, what will happen is we get this developmental imbalance where we have certain areas of the brain that are too advanced and too high and hyper-connected. And we get other areas of the brain that are underdeveloped, immature, and hypo-connected, and they can't share information together. And this produces symptoms that we call something like ADHD or autism or OCD. And what we're looking at is the symptoms of something like OCD or ADHD is basically that we have areas in the left side of the brain that are hyperactive, areas that promote movement or promote thinking or promote behaviors Um, And what happens is those areas are hyperactive and hyperconnected. So we're obsessive and compulsive and hyperactive or impulsive or we have tics or we have vocal tics like Tourette's and the right side of the brain, which is more inhibitory, can't shut that off. And the right brain also is what pays attention. The right brain knows nonverbal cues. It's more about social. It's about emotional. It's about coordinating our body and feeling our body in space. And so we have a deficiency of both. So with ADHD, we have attention deficit hyperactive disorder. The attention deficit is from the left, right brain being underdeveloped. We have lack of attention. Something called the dorsal attention network isn't fully formed from the bottom up. It never really grew. It never really matured. Um, So it's immature. Like, you know, every two-year-old kid has ADHD, right? Because they're immature. Their brain is immature. But the left brain is hyperactive. And so what happens is we have hyperactivity, physical motor hyperactivity, or tics, or OCD, which we almost always see in concert with one another. And that's an example of an imbalance, a developmental imbalance That is really there's no damage, there's no injury in the brain, there's no genetic mutation um, that is causing it. It's an it's an electrical developmental imbalance that happens for various reasons, and it's correctable most of the time.
0: So when we talk about these developmental uh, uh, asynchronies, you were talking about environmental deficit. Could there be? Can you give some examples of? Is it a nutritional deficit? Is it movement deficit? Is it is it too much plastics? Is it toxins? What, what is causing, and I, I ask this question because I, I, I can hear the mothers that are listening to this now, they're like, oh my gosh, that's my child, my child, I've been told ADHD. Where is the, and we're going to get into some of the rehab as well, but where does this come from? Where can we, is this, is this preconception, in utero? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, my third book, by the way, if somebody really wants to read this, you know, in very um, comprehensive way, my third book is called Autism, the Scientific Truth of Diagnosing, Treating and Preventing Autism Spectrum Disorders. And um, in that I go through um, all of the genetic, epigenetic and environmental reasons. But essentially, it's this, that What we know is that for the most part, most of these issues, or at least things like autism, schizophrenia, ADHD, probably start in the womb, Um, but they're epigenetic, which means that they're not genetic mutations, but rather there are genes. One, there are certain traits that people have, right? So we have a trait, and that trait is usually either that we're a little bit more left-brain or right-brain thinking cognitive style personality style um, just like you know we're right handed or left-hand dominant we are born and genetically we're either going to be a little bit more left brain or right brain dominant and that runs in our families um, and you know there's nothing abnormal about it but what can happen is we can have an excessive trait so when somebody is extremely talented or extremely intelligent in a particular skill what we know is there's a particular area of the brain, there's a particular network where they are basically hyperconnected in that area of the brain. That area of the brain is stronger and more developed. And so, functionally, they're better at that, at that skill. And this is, you know, kind of a trait. We know that talents and intellect and, you know, art and things like that run in families, right, because there's these skills. So on one hand, what we get is what's believed to be happening is we're getting an excessive trait called looking at an autism trait or an ADHD trait. It means that people in that family, they're not autistic, but they look like they're autistic, but they, but they have a trait. And what is that trait? So with, with ADHD, autism, and schizophrenia, it's been referred to as a intellect trait, right? Meaning that I, I call it a left brain dominant trait. So these are people in families that tend to be left brain dominant naturally. They have stronger networks on that left side of the brain. And when you're strong in one trait, you're a little bit decreased in the opposite trait on the opposite side, right? And normally, you know, traits should be in in about the middle where we're about equal with, with everything. But as we get stronger traits, we get weaker traits on the other side. And what we believe is that in many kids that have autism and ADHD, they're born, their parents are exceptionally exceptional, right? So what we know is that ac- as you go up the a- a socioeconomic scale, uh, you know, parents that are more intelligent, that are better educated, that make more money, that live in better neighborhoods, are more likely to actually have a kid with autism or ADHD, especially in areas and communities where you see a cluster of people that are really in the IT or computer world, like Silicon Valley, there's, there's like, um, you know, one in 10 children have autism, um, and other pa- people around the world. So these are left brain dominant people. They have an excessive trait. If both parents come together, the child has an excessive version of that trait, and then environmental factors can mix with that to basically go over what we call the cliff edge. Mm-hmm. So they have an excessive trait here, and they have a deficit of a trait on another area, and that combination is partly what what loads the gun and then different environmental factors that are prenatal or preconception or postnatal any of those can uh, can affect that by um, chemically interacting or affecting the expression of genes so basically these what we see is these methyl markers or what we get is called dna methylation where You know, when we do something with our body that's unhealthy or not good, we produce methyl molecules. These methyl molecules can attach to our genes and can block that gene from being read and transcribed. And it's not damaged. It's not broken. It's there, but it's not being read. But it looks like the gene isn't there. It looks like a gene mutation in that We don't produce the proper protein, and so therefore we're missing something or we're deficient in something or we don't have enough of something. And what we know is that 85% of our genes are there to build our brain, especially during development, and they're mostly about forming connections in our brain, what we call functional connectivity. So what happens is these environmental factors more more likely affect the the formation of, of connectivity in the brain during development, and since we're developing the right side of the brain in the womb in the first couple of years, that that is most likely impacted, but it can also impact the left side of the brain, and whichever side is affected more, you know, again, we get this, and then this is superimposed on our natural strengths and weaknesses, and all of that comes together, I believe, to produce what we see as these deficiencies or deficits.
0: And I would, uh, I tend to agree with you on the left brain dominant. I would see clinically, so I know I want to talk about the two different prototypes or the two different presentations of a right brain dominant and a left brain dominant child. But in practice, I would see typically more left brain dominant kids, right brain weak. And they tended to. They, it was also much more prevalent in little boys. I wouldn't necessarily see it in girls as much. I had a couple stragglers. Like I had, I definitely had some uh, little girls with more left brain dominant uh, characteristics. But it happened far more. Often in boys. And we can also see that in our diagnostic patterns too. So you know, boys are much more likely to be diagnosed with an ADHD label than than girls are. Uh, so maybe what you can do for, for me and for the listeners is define what a left brain dominant what some of those characteristics might be, um, I know one of my mentors, dr. Michael Hall, uh, who I, I know you are uh, you know very well, would always talk about this idea, and you've mentioned it a few times that the right brain develops first and then the left brain comes online so things like giving you know 2 year olds and you know 1 year olds iPads you know and and we can get into the devices uh, i'm sure in this conversation as well but that is a risk for bringing that left brain activation and connectivity on too early so let's define left brain dominant first because i think that that happens more commonly maybe you can comment on that i just found that in my experience the patterns i would see i would always see more left brains issues and right brain weakness. And then we can get into the right brain dominant left brain weakness as well.
1: Sure. Okay. So left brain, um, what it does is it kicks in, like I said, later on, um, the right brain develops first. So around three years of age is when the left brain kicks in. And so, you know, what's the number one question of a three-year-old? Uh, why, 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 (laughs) why, why why, mommy, why daddy? And they start really speaking up a storm and they become much more verbal. Um, They're, you know, terrible twos and threes basically. So they're very approach driven. They're very motoric, you know, they're all a little hyperactive. They're all ADHD. Um, And, you know, we see that the left brain is really uh, all about details right the left brain likes details it wants details and details and details it's it's about taking in information very rapidly and sequencing it together the left brain looks at things in sequences one step at a time so logically linearly and it's about kind of putting it into some sort of a timeline uh past present future so it's basically information taking in information looking at all these bits and basically figuring out so a pattern that may be in it so that we can figure out and predict where what's going to happen next the left brain is very goal directed and it it governs what we call seeking behavior so we have a goal and we're seeking for clues about how to get to that goal Um, a left brain is very motoric it's what we call approach driven it generates more what we call positive emotions, things like curiosity, uh, happiness. Uh, anger is uh, things that are generated by the left brain. Um, and we uh, controls our small muscles, so like fingers and muscles that move rapidly in a sequence, like our muscles of speech, including our tongue and our mouth. And, you know, this takes a tremendous amount of very fast, coordinated activity to actually speak. Um, And I believe many of the the reasons why many kids with autism don't speak is not because they have a left brain deficit. In fact, it's the opposite, but rather they can't coordinate their speech muscles because their problem is much lower down in the brain in an area called the cerebellum. Yes. I am
0: incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well.
1: What we see is that the left brain um, really is more about activating. It's what I call the gas pedal of the brain. It is behaviorally activating. Um, It will initiate thoughts and ideas. It's naturally impulsive. It's naturally compulsive. It likes patterns. It loves familiarity. It loves to do the same thing over and over again. Um, it's It's more isolated. It's not really connected to our body. It's not as connected to other people. It's not really you know, as social of a brain, it's, it's more kind of ego driven. It's more about, you know, our, our, our self and and kind of being thinking about ourself and being connected to ourself and our goals. Um, And so it's, you know, a little bit kind of on the selfish side, the left brain is a little bit more You know, it wants to kind of seek a goal and get it and get reinforced. The left brain is more, the neurotransmitters, dopamine and acetylcholine are more prevalent in the left side of the brain. So it's reward reinforced, which means that when we do, you know, find a goal or get to a goal, um, we get a shot of dopamine, which rewards us. We, the only type of attention the left brain has is what we call focused attention. So hyper-focused attention like we see in autism, or like we see in other things like schizophrenia, is really a product of the left brain, but generalized, unrewarded, sustained attention is a right brain. That's the kind of attention we really need. The left brain is short-term, hyper-focused attention. So again, being goal-driven, seeking something or clues, um, getting reward reinforced very rapidly and frequently, Um, is what the left brain does. So one of the things that feeds into that are video games, right? Digital technology, video games. The left side of the brain is what governs um, addictive behavior. The reward center called the nucleus accumbens is what gives us that shot of dopamine when we get a goal or when that makes us feel happy and joyful and things like that. And so that network is all those networks on the left side of the brain related to an area of the brain called the basal ganglia and what's called the direct pathway, which is what it activates things. It turns things on. It increases our thinking. It increases our motivation. So if we have too much motivation, we're manic. Um, you know, that's too much left brain. If we have too little motivation, that's depression. That's a left brain deficit, right? So this is the left brain and the right brain, the left brain activates the immune system. So it increases, our immune sensitivity and our um, uh, antibody sensitivity. And it, it so it's more prone if the left brain is too active. We have a hyperactive immune system. We get autoimmune problems. These are kids that I see that, you know, as soon as dairy is introduced to their diet, or even if their mother's eating dairy, they get eczema as a child or as an infant or in three months. Um, I just have one child that I just saw the other day that, um, at six months, they were giving him allergy shots. That's insane, right? That, that shows a super hyperactive immune system. Why would that happen? The only reason why it's really going to happen is because the, there's already a developmental imbalance and the left brain is already online too early and it's too active. So that's the left brain. That's what the left brain does in general.
0: All right, so and that and like I was saying, that is really far more common uh, in practice uh, that I've seen than someone who is more right brain dominant, because we tend to, especially with modern life, there's like the devices and there's the, you know, these little quick shots of dopamine, as you were saying, uh, that can bring the left brain on too early. And I just
1: factors, if you want, just real quickly, what you had mentioned before very astutely was that you see more boys and right brain deficits and. So real quickly, um, the reason why boys is because, first of all, males are more right-brain dominant. There's a slight difference between the male and the female brain, and the males are right-brain dominant, and w- women are more balanced and more connected to begin with. Um, m- males tend to be a little bit more disconnected. So um, we also see that the we all start out with a female body and brain, that's how everybody starts out. Females are actually the, 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 the prototype of human. Uh, even if you're an X or Y chromosome, it doesn't matter. But so the male brain, the female brain and body in a male has to be converted to a male brain and body in the womb. A female does not. So you need all these specific chemicals and hormones to be produced at exactly the right times and right concentrations to properly create a male brain. Um, and males are more, and and the right brain is more dependent on early on physical activity and environmental activity and stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we don't get that type of activity, the right brain will be impacted most. So because we we see that, um, you know, there's anything that affects all of these different environmental effects uh, are more likely, like maternal stress, are more likely to impact a male brain and not a female brain, uh, females aren't as dependent on the right side of the brain. And the right side of the brain is what's developing in the womb in the first two two to three years of life and is more dependent on physical activity, which we see less and less and less of in kids now. And like you just said, technology is now stimulating the left brain more than ever, And not only in kids, but the biggest epigenetic factor, I think, in having a child with an imbalance in their brain is if the mother and the father have an imbalance in their brains. Um, And that is transmitted literally to the child. And so all of that comes together, I believe. Um, The reason why we see more ADHD and autism and five times as many boys that have autism than girls and all of that and why we're seeing so many right brain type of deficits and schizophrenia is the same thing it just happens later on in life but we know it develops in the womb and it develops you know in, in, in you can see it in early in childhood by delays in motor development
0: so if you're if you're a mom who's listening to this and you're thinking god this is my kid i know that some of this information can cause you know, a lot of angst and worry, but the good news is we're giving you the data and the brain, you know, I always say, you know, there's this funny meme I always see online, you know, the brain is the most important organ, you know, according to the brain, but it's it's also one of the most malleable, adaptive organs that we have. So if you are seeing a deficit, if you are seeing some of these characteristics, just know that the good news is, is we're going to be talking about some tools, uh, in just a minute around what we can do. But before we do that, I wanted to move in to a discussion around primitive retained reflexes. I, uh, I've made a list of reflexes for us to discuss. Um, I have to tell you, these, this was my primary. So, when I would have a child in, in the clinic, I would run, I would, no matter what the age was, I would run through these. But I have to tell you, I would also see these in adults as well. And I've had a, a couple of examples uh, of adults, uh, adult males, they've all been males, where there's either been fecal uh, incontinence overnight or urinary incontinence overnight. And we can, we'll get when we talk about the gallant reflex we can kind of tie this open loop, but there's certain reflexes that are predictive of um, deficits, you know, not only in childhood, but if they're not corrected, they will persist into, uh, into adulthood as well. So uh, let's talk about, let's just first define primitive reflex or retained reflex. What does that mean? Why, why do we have them? Um, and how can they influence our childhood development?
1: Sure. When you look at mental health education, basically everything in neuroscience now, it's being recognized that almost everything, even in adults, really is developmental. And it's all around what we call functional connectivity. And the way that the brain develops and grows, what is the main driving force to development of the brain is movement. The reason why we evolved brains on this planet was because something moved. Um, living things that don't move don't have a brain. So in children, what we see is, um, first of all, in humans, we see every brain that has ever existed on this planet is in our brain, right? And we go through those stages during development. We're literally looking at us going through millions and millions of years of evolution as we go through these stages. And each stage is important because it's like building it's like building a building, you know you have to build the foundation and then the bottom floor and the next floor, you can't just go to the top floor. It doesn't work that way, right? We have to build the stages from the bottom up. Um, so movement is what initiates it. what turns on the genes that build our brain that allow us to engage our senses. So sensory feedback is what really turns on the brain, but feedback from our muscles, and, and movement, which is what engages our vision, our hearing, and everything, and that is what initiates it. And we, when we're born, we don't really have a brain. We have 25% of our adult brain there, and we don't really even have much of a motor cortex, or we really don't have much voluntary control of movement at that point. We really only have a brain stem. So what we see is we need to move to build the brain to engage our senses, but we don't really have a brain to move us So we're born with these reflexes that are called primitive or infantile reflexes that live in our brainstem at different levels, and they create these basic reflexogenic kind of robotic automated movements that allow us to move and do basic things to survive. They're believed that you know most of them are already in in the womb are already there. And it's believed that many of these are there to help us start building our brain somewhat as is in the womb, but also to birth ourselves. So to be able to help, help the baby get itself out of the birth canal by twisting or pushing against the side. And when babies come out, you know, I've seen many videos of babies that are born like in water births. And it's in, in, as soon as they come out, you see them using these reflexes to get themselves out. And then they use them to like swim around. It's really pretty cool. They're there. And they are there to allow the baby to move and do things like root and suck so that they can feed themselves. Um, to develop and pro- their, their inner ear vestibular system to protect themselves against falling. Grasping reflexes to hold on. Um, other reflexes to orient themselves to the environment. And some of these reflexes are also very tightly connected to the autonomic system so that they allow them to self-soothe and to digest food and or to allow them to, you know, in, in cry and scream and let the parents know when they're not when they're afraid. Um, so we get these primitive reflexes and they're there to allow us to move, to engage our senses in more in increase this feedback. And then that builds the next layer. Through that feedback, it builds the next story. And then that shuts off those reflexes from there and allows new reflexes to emerge that allow more sophisticated movement, more complex interaction with our environment, more sensory feedback, which builds the next layer, which shuts off that layer. And it goes on and on and on and on until eventually the brain grows. And ultimately, as the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex develop, that comes down and, sh- and permanently shuts off all of these reflexes that it integrates it into the nervous system. They're never really gone. And we know that if you have a brain injury um, later on in life, you have a brain injury as a child, they don't go away. And if you have a brain injury later on in life, they come back. Um, But what isn't commonly known, because uh, pediatric neurologists and and people that look at development, they're aware of primitive reflexes. It's, It's part of a normal, traditional pediatric neurology exam. It has been for decades. But they just assume that all these reflexes automatically go away 100% of time in every child without fail. Um, And they never look at them beyond one year. Um, What people that have looked at them have found is that sometimes they don't go away. And when they don't go away, they signify that areas of the brain are stuck in development or delayed or immature. And it prevents, it causes what we call bottom-up interference, meaning it will, the brain will never complete its bottom-up development. It's like, you know, if one's, if the, the you know, all of a sudden, you know, as you're building a building, all of a sudden you ran out of money and you can't build the next layer. Or you, you know, develop one side of the building, but the other side you don't, or you have to slow down on the other side. Um, and that's not a good thing, right? So This is basically what's happening. Um, You know, the brainstem is this kind of super highway that everything that goes in the brain goes through it and everything that comes out of the brain goes through it. And it's got to be this super fast highway because it's not very big. But imagine if you have, you know, um, part of it is really a dirt road and part of it is this super highway, right? Mm -hmm. And if primitive reflexes, don't go away, it's kind of like we have this dirt road pathway that slows everything down. And so my work is really, really revolved around that. Right now I'm doing a, another doctoral program, PhD program, and my whole purpose of it is to once and for all permanently um, you know, prove beyond a shadow of the doubt that primitive reflexes, if they don't go away in that first year, they will persist for the rest of somebody's life so that, as you said, you see adults, I mean, 50% of my adult patients at least still have primitive reflexes, and most of the problems that they have all go back to childhood, and nobody ever looks at it. I'm I'm doing research with three really pretty well-known neurologists uh, right now, and I trained them on looking at primitive reflexes in all of their, because we're looking at primitive reflexes throughout a course of a life, and they're collecting data on people for me, and, and mm-hmm. they. Started, I showed them and I showed them videotapes of adults that I have that have retained reflexes which is which will blow your mind and they started looking at it on all their patients and they just called me two days ago and said this is unbelievable like we cannot believe what we're seeing on all of our patients and the fact that nobody knows about this none of the other neurologists none of the other doctors know about this we show them some of your videotapes we show them our patients and they just laugh. It's like, I can't, it's, um, it's absolutely remarkable because when you get rid of those reflexes, the change that occurs is absolutely unbelievable. And many of the times what you see with reflexes more often than not is that not only they're retained, so many of them are bilateral reflexes, right? Like they happen on both sides of the body and this, and they, and in an infant, they're supposed to happen equally. What you see is many of them are retained, but they're much more retained on one side than the other, or they're only retained on one side and not the other, which is an absolute indicator that one side of the brain is more mature than the other, right? Right. That's what it means. So this is what my work right now over the next three years is about proving all of this, uh, um, looking at functional connectivity in the brain. In people that have retained primitive reflexes and then doing things, especially hemispheric stimulation, that gets rid of the primitive reflexes and then look at what happens in brain connectivity and in their cognitive and uh, physical functions.
0: And this can get incredibly complex because the brain has both contralateral and ipsilateral control of the body so um, let's let 's go through some you 've mentioned already a few of them. You mentioned the Moreau reflex or the startle reflex um, this is uh, there's a couple of them that I see in practice, so the Moreau uh, I see the gallant which I mentioned before retained I, I see that actually that is probably the one I see the most commonly retained in adults. And I will link out to your social media. You have some incredible videos of adults with the ATNR. So the asymmetrical tonic neck reflex. So just to give people a very brief Uh, explanation of what I'm talking about here. So the Moreau is often referred to as a startle reflex. It's when you take a little baby, holding the baby's neck and and the body, and you sort of very quickly sort of drop them. What we should see is we should see this extension of the hands and then this, you know, followed by a contraction or a flexion. And that should be, to your point, integrated by about four months of age. And when we don't see that, when we see that with babies that are six months, seven months, of age. I mean, you need a little bit more arm strength to be able to do it with babies at that, you know, at that age. But we will see things like I will always ask the if I see if I'm suspecting it in a toddler, I'll ask them if they get motion sickness in the car. That's usually the thing. If they're like, yeah, yeah, we can't actually go along, you know. So they have motion sickness, balance and coordination issues, they're kind of unable to adapt well to change and they have a lot of mood swings. That's when the Moreau. Reflex or that startle reflex is really unintegrated, and the galant and the ATNR, which I wanted to just bring up with you, the galant reflex is you know part of my pediatric exam, and what what you're doing basically is you're basically stroking the side of the spine, and you should see the the infant sort of swing their at least their butt, but their sort of spine towards the side that was stroked, and you were saying before, this helps with the birthing process. This helps the baby sort of turn in the birth canal Um, should be gone by about nine months. And if it's not, this is where we start like mom's complaining about, she usually doesn't bring it up in the beginning, but you know, with some probing and once there's some rapport and trust developed, it'll be like, yeah, the baby's still bedwetting. It's two years old, three years old, five years old, baby's still having this um, nocturnal uh, bedwetting issue Um, and the last one I wanted to bring up, which I, which I think is, um, I see on your profile all the time. I haven't seen this as much clinically is the ATNR or the fencer, uh, the fencer position where you turn someone, like you can get a, you know, a child on all fours, turn their head to one side and you should see the ipsilateral side should extend the contralateral or the opposite side should flex should be gone by oh, my memory, uh, six months ish should be gone by about six months. And you see that, like, I've seen your videos where you see, like you see grown people where they're you're turning their head and they're collapsing on the opposite side. And it's, it's incredible. And this is really, um, uh, you know, to your point, where these retained reflexes—if you're not fixing them, if you're not treating them, or even just looking for them as a clinician or as an educator or a caregiver—these things are going to persist into uh, later on in life and cause lots of problems there. All right. So, what's that?
1: It was a very good review. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> Thank you. There's, and I'll put in the show notes, I have, I have about seven. Uh, I do the STNR. I do Labyrinth. I do Pultisit. So I'll put those all in the show notes. But I just, I wanted to bring up Pultisit. I know that's not a reflex, but I wanted just briefly your thoughts on it. Because I often use that both as a test and as the rehab tool for parents. So sometimes, yeah. and you know, many times, the, the test is actually the, the modality for treatment. Yeah. What are your thoughts on pull to sit? Do you use that? Do you find that indicative of poor motor tone or an, you know, an indication to be uh, increasing some of that axial, uh, axial tone in children?
1: Yeah. I, I, I look at it as, um, you know, maybe the precursor to that is what, what's called the hands pulling reflex, mm. which is where you, you know, grab the child and and the, and you just give a little tug and they automatically pull up. Yeah. If they pull up, further, like you said, they'll sit. But Yes, I, I look at that is that's a postural reflex that should come on when the primitive reflexes go away. So what you see with with a lot of retained reflexes, you won't see that that uh, hands pulling reflex. Um, mm-hmm. And you know it's all, but like you said, it's also something that can be stimulated. And when it does come on, it helps to shut off some primitive reflexes, and it also can be used to build some core muscle strength. Um, automatically, when a child is too young or too uh, disabled to do things like sit ups or core exercises, it's a way, it's an automatic way of getting them to engage those muscles because, you know, I, everything I look at. When I teach my courses, everything is from a developmental perspective. No matter whether you're working with adults or kids, it's still a developmental exam. You're mm-hmm. still looking at that individual person's development of their brain. And more often than not, the reason why an adult is seeing you is because they have something that actually goes back to childhood, even though they have no idea of that. No one's ever mentioned that to them. They don't even know they have primitive reflexes. But, and they may come into you with some problem that doesn't look like it like, you know, chronic digestive issues or gluten sensitivity, but yet it goes back to something that was a brain imbalance and, um, and you know, goes back to that point. And as you said, also, many of these reflexes, especially something like the Moreau, is also very connected to the development of the sympathetic nervous system. So yes, yes. in the womb, when the Moreau develops, um, it's when the sympathetic nervous system develops, and then we also have the fear paralysis reflex that is connected with the freeze response or the old parasympathetic, and then ultimately in the brainstem where we develop the most um, advanced or newer or ventral parasympathetic that inhibits everything. That's in the nucleus the, the nucleus um, ambiguous. So what we see is that the same area where many of these most important primitive reflexes come from, is also the same area of the brainstem where all of our autonomic controls come from. And the autonomic controls are all about digestion and heart rate and detoxification. And ultimately, that's what can also controls or innovates our immune system. Mm -hmm. So when you have these retained reflexes, it means that that brainstem is immature. If the brainstem is immature, it means the autonomic regulation and immune regulation is also going to be Um, is going to be immature and motor control and muscle tone and all of that stuff is, you know, they're all connected to one another.
0: So I want to be respectful of your time. I know that we, uh, that there's some, we have some constraints. I know you're talking to me at a conference right now. So I appreciate you uh, tucking out to have this conversation in just in sort of wrapping up, let's talk about some modalities for how we can help these kids heal. So I know that physical rehab, really big part of my practice. I know it's been a really you know foundational in terms of uh, your work with children. Can we touch on some physical and potentially some metabolic interventions that you like to see when we see some deficits like this, retained reflexes or a left brain dominant or a right brain dominant kid?
1: Sure. Um, two things. One is if people want to see an example like you're talking about of some, many of these reflexes, they can see them on my Instagram. So if they go to, you know, at Dr. Rob Melillo, uh, my Instagram um, there, they can see a lot of these. I'm always posting examples. Um, And if they want to really read up on what to do about these problems and how to assess their child, obviously my book, Disconnected Kids, is where they should go to for that. But, you know, again, since the way my treatment approach is, is that, even though these problems ultimately manifest as lack of development of the prefrontal cortex and different networks that ultimately control behavior, it's, it's, the problem isn't here. The problem starts way down at the bottom of the brainstem quite often or somewhere along there. So because you know motor activity and sensory stimulation is the main foundation of driving the brain, the the initial treatment really needs to be directed primarily towards motor sensory type of activity. So it all starts with first, we have to get rid of these primitive reflexes. If we don't get rid of the primitive reflexes, we're never actually going to get this problem to be where it should be. Um, So we need to do things either by stimulating the reflexes or doing exercises. And what I've found is that to get rid of the reflexes really quickly, you want to couple that with specific stimulation to one side of the brain or the other, and, and to your point before, I actually have seen some of the worst adults with primitive reflexes that I've ever seen have been women with left brain deficits, and I have tremendous examples of that, but it can be either one, um, and so you need to couple those together. So using different types of sensory stimulation like light and sound and smells and you know uh, tactile vibration, Um, but you know, it starts with movement and it starts with building the core muscles. So to build the right brain, to build the the child's ability to, to get connected to their body so that they can start to connect with other people. Um, they need to build their own body. They need to build muscle tone. So they get rid of the primitive reflexes and then they need to build core stability. They need to build the big muscles first. Um, and then they need to build the inner ear system so the vestibular system which has two parts of it and then they need to build the eye motor system and then and then they build the brain so our our brain which has two sides is built on the only other systems that have two sides which is our postural muscles and our spine which is the driving force of all movement and ultimately we can't stand upright if we don't have that so Ultimately, that's the foundation, core stability, balance in the spine and, and in those postural muscles, and then we build the vestibular system on top of that, and then that is also used to build our visual and oculomotor system, which eventually becomes our, one of our dominant uh, sensory things, but all of our senses, then, are built from there. But then those three systems are the foundation of building the two sides of the brain. So we, we go in those stages, right? We, we don't start with eye exercises. We don't start with inner ear stimulation necessarily. If they have primitive reflexes and they have problems with core stability, we're gonna start there and we're gonna build up in that way. And then we're also gonna couple it with sensory stimulation to one side of the brain or the other. And then, you know, we're going to add other more complex things as we go along and we can use electrical stimulation and we can, you know, eventually use transcranial stimulation. We can use elect- electromagnetic stimulation. And it ultimately as the end stage, we use cognitive activities, you know, whether it's academic, behavioral, or even things like neurofeedback. So, you know, we, we have different stages at which we do these things that start with bottom up and then we start coupling it up with what we call top down. The problem is that most of the treatment approaches out there for kids with these issues, whether they're reading problems, dyslexia, learning disabilities, processing disorders, whether they're, you know, ADHD or autism or, you know, or, or something else, they start with top down therapy. They're starting at the roof when there isn't a roof there yet. So they're trying to use behavior, or they're trying to reason with them, or they're trying to get a child who can't read to read. We know that doesn't work. Or they're trying to use stimulation directly on the brain or trying to use neurofeedback. And to me, you can't use those modalities until you build the bottom up. So, but you need to also do it in a balanced way. Otherwise, what's happening is you're gonna make the imbalance worse because if you have an imbalance and you just massively sensory stimulate or motorically stimulate the brain, what happens is the, 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 the side that's more active responds first and the other side doesn't. So what happens is you end up making this side grow faster, this side grows relatively slower, and you make that imbalance worse. So you need to be very specific as to what you're doing and where you're doing it and the modality that you're using. So, you know, it's a little bit, uh, that's where the art and complexity and going to someone that is really properly trained can do that.
0: Robert, this has just been a wealth of information, uh, you know, for parents, for educators, but I think, you know, we have a big population of clinicians who also listen to the podcast. We have PTs, DCs, DOs, OTs, all the letters. Uh, so this has been really, really great. I am going to link out to, if you're a parent or an educator, link out to your three books, Uh, they are highlighted and well read on my bookshelf. Um, any, uh, part, any last sort of parting thoughts before we, before we end our conversation and let you back into your conference.
1: Yeah, I do want to, you know, for the functional medicine people out there also, you know, one of the things I I didn't ignore, but it it is very important is the diet and nutrition component of this, but understanding that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, people saying that, you know, autism and all these things start in the gut. They don't. They actually start in the brain, but the gut is dysfunctional. And I wrote a paper a few years ago called Functional Disconnection. I put the link up on my, uh, on my Instagram as a functional disconnection syndrome, showing that all of the metabolic, dietary, nutritional hormone issues that you see in people with autism could be explained by an imbalance between sympathetic and parasympathetic, and that, that could be that is caused when the brainstem or the brain – doesn't develop appropriately. So, you know, it is very important to utilize those things. You can't really help someone fully if you don't eliminate foods that they're sensitive to or give them vitamins or, but, you know, that isn't the primary cause. Um, and the other thing is that if there are clinicians out there that want to learn, I have a course that I'm teaching uh, in Atlanta right now. It's a, it's a fellowship course. It's 10 modules, uh, weekend modules. It's, uh, it's also online as well. If they go to my website, they can find out drrobertmalillo.com So they can take it online. They can take it live. They can take a mixture of it. And we're using some really, we're introducing some really cool modalities that are really the future. Um, things like digital medicine or digital therapy, you know, where we're, we're working with creating things like video games and, and, and virtual reality that can be used in a proper way. I mean, it, if it can be used to hurt the brain, it can also be used to change the brain properly. Yes. Um, but, you know, use of lasers, the use of all these really new modalities, things like interactive metronome, uh, the CEO of the company is going to be there next time. They're going to be talking about, about that. So, and it's also some of the really smartest people in the world, but also, you know, it's simple enough that anybody, I've had parents go through this course um, and understand it and do it. So if they want to find out about it, they can go to my website. I'm going to be doing it again, you know, next month. They can get the videos that we've done already and catch up. But I think if they want to really learn this stuff and be able to use it at the highest level, um, you know, they should look into either my online course or my professional course, and I think they'll get a lot out of it.
0: Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Robert Malilo, And I will link, I will put all those links in the show notes if you were interested in finding out more about his work and definitely your Instagram. I enjoy your Instagram so much because I look at, you put just the most amazing videos up there. So we'll have all of that in the show notes and more. Thank you so
1: much for your time today. Thank you very much. This was great.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes you'll find research links summary notes musings that i prepared in preparation for the podcast and i often throw in some of my best practices bonuses and links all the juicy bits are in there for you and now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer this podcast is for general information only And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship form, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Sima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.